turn with me in your Bibles to Nehemiah chapter 8. This morning we're continuing our study through the book of Nehemiah. Today we're looking at part two of a study I've titled, How God's Work of Revival Began. Our main text is Nehemiah chapter 8, verses 7 through 18. I hope you were able to listen to it last week, even if you weren't here. Just a reminder, if you miss a Sunday and you want to kind of stay up to date with what's going on, you can, our, our podcast publishes the, the messages every week. They're available on our church app, on our website, on YouTube, all, the, all those places. So I encourage you to keep, keep, keep up to date with us. But let's read verses 1 through 6 as we begin this morning. Verse 1, Nehemiah chapter 8. It says, now all the people gathered together as one man in the open square that was in front of the water gate. And I almost told a Richard Nixon joke last week, but I didn't. <laughs> I was so close. I had it in my notes. I took it out. And my daughter afterwards was like, I thought you were going to say something about, I am not a crook. That's what I was going to say last week. But anyways. See, it wasn't too late. I had an opportunity because it's reading it. Anyways. And they told Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had commanded Israel. So Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly of men and women, and all who could hear with understanding on the first day of the seventh month. Then he read from it in the open square that was in front of the water gate from morning until midday, before the men and women and those who could understand, and the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. So Ezra the scribe stood on a platform of wood, which they had made for the purpose, and beside him, at his right hand, stood Mattathiah, Shema, Ananiah, Urijah, Hilkiah, and Messiah, and at his left hand, Padeah, Mishael, Malkijah, Hashum, Hashpadana, Zechariah, and Meshulam. And Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was standing above all the people, and when he opened it, all the people stood up. And Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God. Then all the people answered, Amen, Amen, while lifting up their hands. And they bowed their heads and worshiped the Lord with their faces to the ground. As I shared last week, uh, one definition of revival that's been kind of out there, one man who used to love to preach on revival, a guy named J. Edwin Orr, defined revival as the Spirit of God working through the Word of God in the lives of the people of God. And clearly, this is what was happening in the lives of all these people who had gathered on the first day of the seventh month, which was the the, the Feast of Trumpets. These people were attentive to God's Word. They heard it, sought to understand it. They received it. They recognized the authority of God's word in their lives. They honored it and exalted it to its proper place. And then they responded to the reading of God's word as the spirit of the Lord prompted them. The the saying of amen, the lifting up their hands, the the bowing and the, the putting their face to the ground. God was working. Ezra had prayed in the past, as we considered last week, for the Lord to do a work of revival in the people. He included himself in that prayer for revival. 
And now after years of him being there among the people, teaching them God's word, wanting to see them worshiping the Lord, walking in obedience to his word, we saw God, or we see God, honoring the faithful ministry and prayers of Ezra in the work of revival that he began to do in this chapter. And now in part two, we're going to continue to see how God's work of renewal and revival began as the people were helped to understand God's word as it was taught, as they mourned over and then rejoiced in his word and in how they're going to obey his word. So with that context, let's read verses 7 and 8. Verse 7, also Jeshua, Bani, Sherebiah, Jamin, Akub, Shabbatai, Hodijah, Messiah, Kelida, Azariah, Josabad, Hanan, Peleah, and the Levites helped the people to understand the law, and the people stood in their place. So they read distinctly from the book in the law of God, and they gave the sense and helped them to understand the reading. We, we already saw a list of the group of men who were standing with Ezra in verse 4, those men likely being other priests who were standing in unity with Ezra, were available to help with the ministry of the word of God to the people. But now in verse 7, we see another group of men listed along with the Levites. All of these men being there with the purpose of helping the people to understand the law as the people stood in their place. And, you know, maybe how this looked was you know, maybe out of the tens of thousands of people that potentially had gathered, maybe they were standing in groups where the different priests and Levites could more easily teach the people after the word was read to them. Maybe there was some intervals of silence where maybe Ezra would read and then give the, the different priests and Levites an opportunity to then take what had been read and, and seek to, to teach the people in a deeper way who were gathered in, in those different areas. They read distinctly. This is what we see them doing in verse 8. They read distinctly from the book in the law of God. Now, the word distinctly means to explain, to make clear and free from any confusion. They gave the sense, meaning that they gave the meaning or the idea that was intended and then they helped the people to understand. So they, they taught so that they could comprehend what was being read and know how to apply it and how it applied to their lives. All of this happened so that the people would understand. So it's sort of a common theme in a, in a chunk of verses here. They would understand God's word. This was and still is important to our God. I think about all the times in, throughout history where God's word was kept from God's people. Centuries of people joining together in different contexts where they would hear God's word, but it was in a language they couldn't even understand. This happened for many, many, many years, even in the Catholic church where people would assemble and God's word was taught, but it was taught in, in Latin. It was taught in a language that I, I can't understand. How can I apply? How can I even know how God's word is for me? Because it, 
it seems like it's sort of kept at arm's distance. And to know that throughout the course of human history, God's always desired His people, for, for people even in general, to understand what He was wanting to say to them. That our God is a relational God in that sort of way. Speaking to Adam and Eve, being there with them, this, this relational component. Speaking to Cain when he was considering killing his brother. Sending prophets who would speak in the language of the people, bringing the message of God so that they could understand God was wanting them to to know something that was straight from his heart for theirs. And then ultimately, the word of God becoming flesh in the person of Jesus Christ, tabernacling among us, being here in this world so that we would know God has words for us. He has a message for us. And that message is connected to His Son. That He wants us to know Him. He wants us to understand Him. And it can be so easy for us to approach the Word of God with just this like, I don't understand it. I don't understand it. And because I don't understand it, I don't really press in to understand. Because in my mind, I'm just thinking, I'm not going to understand If I'm not going to understand, why do I even try? But we see this example throughout history, but specifically in our text here. God clearly desiring that we would understand his word. That these people here in Nehemiah's day wouldn't just come away with, with intellectual knowledge even about God's word but so that the word of God would get into the the people's minds and hearts and and would accomplish everything God, God desired it to in their lives. See, in order for us to be stirred, to, to be impacted, to be transformed by God's word in the work of renewal and revival that he continuously sort of wants to bring about its crucial we understand what his word is saying to us. Now, on one hand, this just sort of reinforces the importance of our own personal study of God's word, that we would be people who dig deep. We press in. That if there's a lack of understanding, it doesn't turn us away from the Lord, where we're just kind of like, well, I guess I just, I'm never going to understand. No, that we would go, Lord, make me understand. We would press in more. We would see that God's maybe gifted even other people, godly people, solid theologically sort of people that could maybe help bring insight into our lives and things that we don't understand so that we do understand. But there's another side of that 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 this also teaches us is that it's crucial that churches and pastors teach God's word to God's people. And the example we have here in our text is one of expositional teaching like we seek to do here at Calvary Chapel Walnut Creek. See, part of God's design for our spiritual growth and maturity, which is why we prioritize this here, comes from God's word being faithfully 
expositionally taught. This means that it's taught distinctly. We seek to make God's word clear. Clear up the confusion. Where the sense is given. That insight into the meaning is, is, is held out. And where help is given to understand it. Not just to understand or comprehend intellectually what it means, but also to understand and see how it applies to our lives personally. In our day-to-day lives, how do these things that happened thousands of years ago in a culture that seems so foreign to me apply to my life today? Because it does. They help the people understand. And this understanding did something powerful in the hearts of the people as we're going to see in these next verses. And so let's continue on. Verses 9 through 12, it says, verse 9, And Nehemiah, who was the governor, Ezra the priest and scribe, and the Levites who taught the people, said to all the people, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn nor weep. For all the people wept when they heard the words of the law. Then he said to them, Go your way, eat the fat, drink the sweet, and send portions To those for whom nothing is prepared, for this day is holy to our Lord. Do not sorrow, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. So the Levites quieted all the people, saying, Be still, for the day is holy. Do not be grieved. And all the people went their way to eat and drink, to send portions and rejoice greatly, because, notice, they understood the words of that were declared to them. See, the understanding that came about in the hearts and minds of the people as they received God's word did something inside of them. The people wept when they heard the words of the law. They didn't weep because they were just like so over it from the five to six hour Bible study. They're not weeping like, will this guy just stop? I can't handle it. And they're just weeping. Like, that wasn't this. There was a deep mourning that came about as they were taught and helped to understand what God's word said. Maybe you've had that happen in your life. You've been reading in God's word, or maybe you're sitting in a Bible study, and all of a sudden you're overwhelmed with God's word sort of just confronting your life, calling you out, exposing something in you. Now, God's word often will minister us, minister to us, right? And all of us, we might be moved emotionally because of maybe the encouragement or the comfort that God's word brings, and it does that too, but for these people, there was, a, there was a grieving that took place. And I think this is part of what made their rejoicing so powerful in verse 12, because there was a deep brokenness that preceded the joy. There was a deep mourning over the things being revealed to them that weren't where God wanted them to be. 
and exposing of sin, a revealing of their unfaithfulness, their rebellion. But that deep mourning is going to be transformed by the grace of God to become a deep joy after the people are challenged and encouraged by the leaders. Now, I I want us to understand here, Nehemiah, Ezra, the Levites who taught the people, they didn't tell the people not to mourn nor weep because the sin and rebellion and unfaithfulness and all the things that were exposed internally were just not that big of a deal. They didn't tell the people not to mourn nor weep because God doesn't ever want us to be sad and only wants us to be happy. And they didn't tell the people not to mourn or weep because God doesn't want us to experience brokenness over our our sin and our waywardness that would lead us to repentance. No, none of that. The reason they told the people not to mourn or weep was because God desired a different response on this specific day, on the Feast of Trumpets, a day that was holy to the Lord their God. This wasn't a day for weeping and mourning and grieving. It was a day for feasting and celebration. It was a day to bless others, sending portions to those whom nothing was prepared. And it was a day for rejoicing with thankfulness unto their God. See, see mourning And weeping and grieving was going to come. The day of atonement was just nine days away. But this day was to be different. And confession of sin was going to come, as we'll see in chapter 9. But Ezra and the priests wanted the people on this holy day to embrace the sweetness of this work of of renewal and revival that the Lord was bringing about Instead of them being overwhelmed and consumed by the grief of all the areas where they fell short. I I like what Pastor Tony Evans said in his Bible commentary about verse 10. He wrote this. He said, Nehemiah said, do not grieve. Then he offered them something in sorrow's place, the joy of the Lord. What you focus on governs how you feel. The reason why many of us stay grieved for so long is because we stay focused on what is so wrong. Rather than finding our chief joy in the Lord, we turn on the TV to escape. We enter into illegitimate relationships to escape. We get involved with drugs or alcohol to escape. He says, if your focus is properly situated on the Lord, however, he will give you his joy and his joy will give you strength. You know, there is real and true joy to be found and received that isn't fleeting and fickle like happiness Because happiness changes with our circumstances externally. Happiness can change when your favorite sports team loses in the second round of the playoffs. Dang it. Still recovering from that one. 
Happiness changes not just from external circumstances, but even how we're feeling internally. Our feelings change from moment to moment. Real, true joy to be found. A deep, real, unshakable, abiding joy. Because it's sourced in and made available by and it's produced through our God. We need to get and keep our focus on Jesus and part of how that happens as happened with the Jews in our text is by seeking the Lord in his word. The prophet Jeremiah, a guy who had a really extremely difficult ministry assignment at an extremely difficult point in Judah's history. Not only did he prophesy in the time leading up to the Babylonians coming and conquering them, but actually saw it all happen, had to see all the aftermath, and then wrote what we know as the book of Lamentations. He wrote this. He told the Lord this in Jeremiah 15, verse 16. He said that he had found and ate God's word. He had feasted upon the word of God. And that what he found when he did that was that God's word was to him the joy and rejoicing of his heart. Guys, know this. The Lord wants us to find and feast upon his word, to really take it in and meditate upon it and seek to apply it. Wanting to cause his word to be the joy and rejoicing of our hearts because through the word of God, we are brought into deeper intimacy of fellowship with the God of the word. You know, some of us have a hard time seeing the goodness of God in our circumstances, seeing the goodness of God in all the chaos of our worlds. But guys, one of the keys to us seeing the goodness of God is by feasting upon the faithfulness of God, to taste and to see that he's good. Because if we're not first-hand partakers of the goodness of God in our own lives, we are going to miss all the ways that God's goodness might be seen in our day-to-day lives. Part of how we taste and see, part of how we feast upon Him, again, we getting into the Word, knowing who He is, knowing what He said to us, knowing what He said about us. These people in our account of of Nehemiah chapter 8 needed to be quieted by the leaders in their state of overwhelming grief. They needed this word of encouragement so that they could understand what God desired from them, but also what he wanted to do in them, his joy becoming their strength. And as we see in verse 12, it was with them now having a right understanding of the words of of the Lord that led them to respond appropriately in the way God desired them to. That their newfound understanding of God's word would lead them to rejoice greatly. 
This work of renewal and revival that God began, it started with them understanding his word, it, it, then with them mourning and, and then rejo- rejoicing because of God's word. And now that work is going to continue as they seek to obey God's word in verses 13 through 18. So let's read verses 13 through 15 first to start. Verse 13, now in the second day, the heads of the fathers' houses of all the people with the priests and Levites were gathered to Ezra the scribe in order to understand the words of the law. And they found written in the law, which the Lord had commanded by Moses, that the children of Israel should dwell in booths during the feast of the seventh month, and that they should announce and proclaim in all their cities and in Jerusalem, saying, Go out to the mountain and bring olive branches, branches of oil trees, myrtle branches, palm branches, and branches of leafy trees, to make booths as it is written. What took place in verses 1 through 12 all happened over the span of just one single day. But, but now on the second day, we see the heads of the father's houses of all the people with the priests and Levites gathering to Ezra in order to further understand the words of the law. So so the revival that began to take place on that first day, the feast day, was was not a one and done sort of thing where everyone the next day just sort of went back to life as it was before. No, the heads of the people on a community level came together with all the spiritual leaders of the people with the goal of wanting to understand God's word even more. I, have you ever had this happen to you where God does something in your life, something clearly the Lord happens, and then sort of the next day you just find yourself just kind of settling in, back into whatever it was that happened the day before that? Like, it, almost as if that, that work of God in your life never even really took place, almost like it was just a dream. And, and, and I think about times, and this is not a diss to any of these people, but I've, over the years, had people come on a Sunday morning and even come up to me after a service and with tears in their eyes, God ministering to their hearts, just like, I love this church, this is my new home church, I'm going to be back next week, and I've never seen that person ever again. And you know what? Every single time, I believe them. I believe them. Why? Because God is doing a work in them. I don't discount that. I don't get jaded by the fact that I might not see them again. That's between them and the Lord. But to see God so clearly working in somebody, they're moved. God's, God's, His Spirit is moving upon their life. There's some sort of emotional response. Not that that's the indicator that God's moving. Because if we're relying upon an emotional response, that's, that's, it's going to come and go. Go with the constancy of who God is. Be, become a stable believer in that sort of way. It, it's good to have those moved emotionally sorts of moments. Those are, those are sweet times. We appre- we, we're thankful for that. But the reason I brought this up is that something happened. There's a move of God 
but then no, no real follow-up to what God did. And how important it is for you and me when God is doing something in our lives, when God is speaking something so clearly to our hearts, don't let that thing just drift away out of just the routine of your life, settling back in. Press into the Lord the next day and the next day after that. And those things that God puts on your heart where you're not even sure, like, is that for right now? Is that for later? Is that for 10 years from now? Keep seeking him on those things. When God does something in your life, ask him to do even more. You think he's going like, I did that, I mean, I did that thing in your life 20 years ago. Wasn't that good enough for you? Any of us who are married would never approach our marriage with, well, I told you I loved you when I married you. Wasn't that good enough for you? That was a real special day, wasn't it? We had a lot of people. There was a lot of feasting. There was a lot of good stuff. We danced. Wasn't that, that wasn't good? You want more from me? That would be horrible, right? But why, would, why do we approach God that way? Why do we settle in on this, this experience with God in the past, His Spirit working in our lives in the past, a, a, a hunger that He developed in our heart for Him in the past, and then just think like, well, that was, I mean, I guess that was it. I think God is desiring for us to keep pressing in and, and, and not like that we're not satisfied with those moments where God's moving and working and speaking. But I think there's sort of, sort of a, a proper dissatisfaction where we're not s- settling for the work God did yesterday. We're going, God, I want more of you today. And I think we miss out on things because we don't approach him that way. We got to press in. And, and notice it's the heads of the father's houses, the, the, the men of the households, the men of the communities. This is not to discount the role of the woman. But these men were going, God wants me to lead well i got to be someone who knows God's word and I can help impart that to my family. I, I could be someone who helps lead spiritually, can be a spiritual covering in my home and in my community. And it was these heads of the Father's houses who came back and said, teach us more. I want to know more. That five to six hours of Bible study, the the previous day was not enough for them. They wanted more of God's word in their lives. And it was this desire that led to them finding something important that they were supposed to be observing, which was supposed to take place 13 days after that point. It was the Feast of Tabernacles. Where the people were to set up booths or, or huts on the 15th day of the 7th month and, and live in those huts for a whole week. 
in remembrance and celebration and thankfulness for how the Lord had led and cared for and provided for the Israelites in their 40 years of wandering through the wilderness in Moses' day. See, their negligence to really want to understand or God's word in the past, and I think in some ways probably their willful ignorance to God's word in the past, had led to them not fully walking in all that God had commanded them in his word and, and really kept them living in a state of disobedience. But this work of revival that God began to do was now leading them in what should always be the right progression in all of our lives to not just hear God's word, not just understand God's word, not just rejoice in God's word, but also to obey it. What they found that they weren't doing, they wanted to make right. And so, they announced, they proclaimed in all their cities and in Jerusalem that people needed to get ready for the Feast of Tabernacles to get everything necessary to make their booths. And this is what we see happening in these next verses. Verse 16 continues, Then the people went out and brought them and made themselves booths, each one on the roof of his house or in their courtyards or the courts of the house of God and in the open square of the water gate and in the open square of the gate of Ephraim. So the whole assembly of those who had returned from the captivity made booths and sat under the booths. For since the days of Joshua, the son of Nun, the only guy to be the son of a nun, all of scripture, just kidding. <laughs> She's a, don't you see this woman as a nun? For since the days of Joshua, the son of Nun, until that day, the children of Israel had not done so. And there was very great gladness. Also, by, uh, day by day, from the first day until the last day, he read from the book of the law of God. And they kept the feast seven days, and on the eighth day there was a sacred assembly according to the prescribed manner. They wanted to do things as it was written in the book of the law. Guys, we can't underscore the importance of obedience. Good intentions is not enough. Being mo moved emotionally in a moment even is not enough if there's not some sort of follow-up of obedience to whatever it is that God is saying or has said in his word. And, and maybe for, maybe, you know, maybe it's a thing of ignorance. Like maybe we just didn't know. Or maybe we, we came out of living in the world and we brought sort of worldly thinking into our relationship with the Lord. But then all of a sudden God's word started to expose some of that the, the faulty philosophies of life that we've sort of grabbed a hold of. And all of a sudden it's like, oh, you know what? God's not okay with that. that his word actually says that that's sin. And, and we could try to rationalize it all we want and make excuses. And, but if it's been written, if it's the word of God to you and me, which all of this is, every single bit of it, 
then there has to be, there has to be submission to the authority of God and his word. Because if we say, oh man, I read this and ooh, okay, like it confronted me with something. I didn't, that, that's, God's not okay with that. He's calling that sin here. And I just sort of move on from that. You know what that says about my life? I'm Lord, not him. You're Lord, not him. Jesus said, why do you call me Lord, Lord, but not do the things I've said to you, I've commanded you? We, sometimes we make Jesus out to be this real soft guy. He's real soft. He's just like, just love, just love people. Go your way, love people. He wants, yes, of course, we need to love people. But there's truth. There's truth that confronts us at times. Is he Lord? They did it as it was written in the book of the law. They wanted to move past just doing what they wanted to do, doing what made them feel good, doing what seemed right to them or might have been convenient for them, and they started walking in obedience to what God had written down for them in his word to do. And so in obedience, they prepared the necessary things so that they would be ready to observe the feast once the 15th day of the month came. And this really stuck out to me. Because the example of the Jews here reminds us that there are pretty much always practical things involved in and connected to our spiritual obedience to the Lord. It usually requires something on our parts outwardly, some sort of act, a a commitment, something that we start to do, a, a, a way that we choose to respond or, or whatever that might be, but there's, there's usually a practical component to our spiritual obedience. And we need to prepare. We need to prepare ourselves. I think, you know, even how we approach Sunday mornings, there's a preparation that goes into that. Instead of coming haphazardly like... You know, Saturday night, you're like, maybe I'll wake up on time in the morning or not. Maybe I I mean, I'm not going to set my alarm. If the Lord wants me to go, he'll wake me up. (laughs) Preparing your kids. Hey, tomorrow morning we're going to church. We're going to be with God's people. We're going to worship the Lord together. Maybe helping them to see the value of that time, and saying, hey, we're going to wake up a little earlier so we can get ready, so we can be there. And and there's like a preparation in a practical sense that helps us to walk in those spiritual things that God has uh, has for us. Now, in the... uh, sort of on, the, on the, the thread of helping to bring understanding to God's word, I don't want us to misunderstand verse 17. 
Because it almost seems like we're being told in that verse that the people had not kept the Feast of Tabernacles at all since the time of Joshua when the Israelites first came out of the wilderness and into the promised land because that wasn't the case and that's not what the writer here is saying. What we're being told in verse 17 is that it had never been kept like it was right now where the whole assembly kept the feast and in how they kept it with very great gladness. See, the Jewish people had kept this feast before in the roughly 1,000 years since the days of Joshua, the son of Nun. We're even told that they kept this feast early on after the first returning, uh, after the, the first exiles returned from, from Babyl- Babylonian captivity. We see this in the book of Ezra, that they kept the feast after they set up the altar, after they all finally got back into the land. But never... Never had they kept this feast in this sort of way, with this level of participation and celebration, which really is a testament to the work of revival that God had begun in the lives of his people. I like what Pastor Nate Holdridge over at Calvary Monterey said about this. He said, this rejoicing is the result of obedience. We might think that governing our own lives is a surefire path towards happiness. If that were true, we would expect our society to be one of the most joyful and satisfied. The mantra or dogma of our day is to be yourself and live your truth. But rather than find generations of fulfilled people, we find heightened anxiety, abuse, depression, and anger. The dirty little secret is that our culture's view of how the world works doesn't work. Contrary to popular popular belief, it is submission to God that brings true joy. He went on to say, casting off the shackles of God has not led to the peace and happiness many imagined, but God patiently waits, extending the offer of forgiveness and a path back to him through the death of his son. I love that. They kept the feast as they were commanded to do in God's word. The the law was read to the people day by day, from the first day until the last. This is actually something that was required every seventh year to happen, according to Deuteronomy chapter 31. And on the eighth day, they held a sacred assembly. So it wasn't officially a feast day anymore because the feast itself only lasted seven days. But on the eighth day, they held this sacred assembly, which according to Numbers chapter 29, meant that the people would do no customary work on that day. But I I love that our one-year Bible reading plan, for those of you guys that are trekking along with us in God's Word, had us in the second half of John chapter 7 yesterday Because it was literally just so perfect as I was finalizing my preparation for this study. We find this in John 7, verses 37 through 39. It says, On the last day, that great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out, saying, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. 
But this he spoke concerning the Spirit, whom those believing in him would receive. For the Holy Spirit was not yet given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. The the last day, that great day of the feast, we're going to keep that passage up on the screen, is a reference to the eighth day of the Feast of Tabernacles. Can we get that back up on the screen? The, The same thing that we find the Jews in Nehemiah's day observing as God was doing a work of revival in them, which was being seen in their obedience to observe this feast that they had neglected in the past. Now, according to David Gutzik's commentary, where he talked about the eight days of this feast, he said, all through the first seven days, water from the pool of Siloam was carried in a golden pitcher and poured out at the altar to remind everyone of the water God miraculously provided for a thirsty Israel in the wilderness. It seems, he says, that on the eighth day, there was no pouring of water, only prayers for water. See, the Jews in Nehemiah and Jesus' day looked back that eighth day of the feast to how God provided for his people's physical thirst in the wilderness But Jesus, on that eighth day, some 400 plus years later after Nehemiah's time, called out to thirsty people with an invitation for them to experience something completely new. That those who thirst, speaking of that spiritual longing that exists in every single person, were to come to him and drink. That whoever believes in him, as the scriptures said, out of their hearts would flow rivers of living water. This was an invitation to a new work of God's spirit to come. The, The Jews in Nehemiah's day experienced renewal and revival as they understood God's word, as they rejoiced in God's word, as they obeyed God's word. But even they didn't get to experience what God has made available to men and women today who have put their faith in Jesus Christ, who come to him and drink of the living waters he gives, receiving his salvation. The only way to have that deep spiritual longing quenched, a work of the Spirit of God that not only comes into our lives, but flows out from our lives. Where out of our hearts flows rivers of living water. And this invitation from Jesus is still available to all who are thirsty today. On this eighth day, the people would have just gone, yep, we're still thirsty. We're still thirsty. Yeah, God's provided in the past, but we're still thirsty. Jesus shows up and he goes, you have a thirst, I can feel it. I can feel it. I have living water. And I think today as we consider, you know, all that we've studied even from last week to to today, just, yeah, of course, God's wanting to do this work, but are 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 we listening to his invitation Are we taking him at his word? 
Because when he says come, what's, what's the right response from us? Obedience. Lord, I'll come. I'm coming to you. Come to me and drink. Lord, I'm coming to you. I'm, I'm going to receive from you all that you have for me. To know that Jesus even was looking forward beyond his death to when the Spirit of God would be poured out on the day of Pentecost and the, and the Spirit of God would come upon the, the church of God and, and to look at us today and go, we still need the work of the Spirit in our lives. We need the, that outpouring of the Spirit of God upon our hearts. God, revive me. Revive us. Lord, I want to understand your word. I want to rejoice in your word. I want to obey your word. But God, I want your spirit doing that work. So Lord, would you do it? And I know I called us last week, those that wanted to stand, and I'm sure that there were some who didn't, who wished that they did. And the worship team come back up. This morning, maybe there's just that last piece you're, you're going, cool, I, I understand. I, I get it. I get what God's saying to me. And I'm in, inwardly, I'm rejoicing over these realities, these truths for my life. But what about that final component of obedience? What's, what's the Lord speaking into your heart that you would submit to what he's doing? And say, Lord, I'm fully on board with whatever it is that you want for my life. And so if that's you this morning and you're going, you know, and maybe you stood last week, but you're going, I, I still want it. I want the work of God in my life. I want the Spirit of God poured out upon my life. I, I want that sort of revival that we see happening in the Jewish people that, that happened in the early church. Would you stand so I could pray for you this morning? If that's you. And you're going, I, I want God to do that with me. Do, Lord, do it with me. <laughs> I want those rivers of living water to flow out of my life. Maybe this morning you're going, I'm feeling more like a, a dry desert than, a, than having a, a river of living water. Maybe you've been partaking of other things, thinking that, you know, I have Jesus, but this other thing too, that, that also will kind of help satisfy things in my life heart but what you're finding is that those things are leaving you thirsty still are you thirsty this morning would you come to him and drink would you come to him in submission and just say lord have your way in me awesome lord i pray for these as they've stood this morning god you know their hearts Lord, you know that deep longing in each of their lives, God. That thirst, Lord, that that's, that's there. That you created in us to only be fulfilled by you. Lord, that thirst that can never be satisfied by the wells of this world, the things of this world. Lord, bring these people back. It just in their own hearts, God. Bring them back to that place of simple devotion, of loving you with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength. God, pour out your spirit upon them this morning. Flood their hearts and minds, Lord Jesus. Cause those rivers of living water to flow out from them. 
Lord, as they stood this morning and just a step of obedience, God, meet them where they're at. Lord, satisfy their thirst this morning. Lord, would they rejoice in you, Lord, even more. God, would they walk in submission to your word. Lord, would they understand it. God, would they, Lord, be people who are a blessing to others and and bring your gospel to others. God, meet them today. Do a work of revival, Lord, in them today, we ask. And Lord, as we pray for that, we trust that you will. You guys can go ahead and have a seat. Maybe for some others this morning, you're going, look like, it's not revival necessarily that I need because I just need salvation. I I just need the Lord to to save me, to forgive me, to to take me from what Scripture says is for, for the reality of each person who's born into this world, that we're born dead in our sin and our trespasses, but that there's life. There's life that God wants to give us. It's only found in Jesus Christ. And so if that's anybody here this morning and you're, you came into this, this room separated from God because of your sin, you don't have to leave the way that you came in. You can leave as a new creation in Christ Jesus. And if that's you this morning, I'd love to pray for you. Would you stand if that's anybody in here and you're going, I... I need the Lord to save me, to forgive me, to do a a work in me of just making me a child of God. Is that anybody at all? Lord, you know where each is at, God. You know even maybe some online, Lord, who right now in this moment, they're standing in a living room or they're maybe... Some inmates later on are watching this, this service and, and they're standing in, in, a, in, a, in, a, in a cell in a room somewhere with somebody. Lord God, that they would just know in their hearts that, Lord, you're calling out to them to come to you, that Jesus, you are the way, truth, and life. No one comes to the Father except through you. That in their hearts they would just call out to you and say, Jesus, I'm a sinner Jesus, save me of my sins. Forgive me of my sins. Cleanse me of all my unrighteousness. Jesus, I put my faith in you. I believe you died on the cross for me. Jesus, I believe you rose again from the grave for me. Lord Jesus, I repent of my sin. I turn away from it today. And I turn in faith to you. I just encourage you, if you've done that today, the Bible says that you will be saved. You will be saved. Lord, would you meet those who are making that decision even now? Fill them with your joy. Lord, would the joy of of you, Lord, be the strength of your people today? God, would we not be overwhelmed or overcome, God, by our circumstances, or even by our sin, Lord, or even by what's going on around us in this world. But Lord, would your joy be the strength of our lives? Lord, an unshakable abiding joy that comes from you. Bless your people, Lord. Make us 
bold witnesses for you this week, Lord Jesus. Go before us. Would the light of Jesus shine through us? Would the love of Jesus be, be, be demonstrated through our lives, Lord? Would the gospel of Jesus be on our lips? Lord, have your way with us. Lord, we continue in this attitude of worship now, Lord, as we sing these songs. Lord, would you have every bit of us, Lord? We thank you, Father. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.